Welcome to Swansea Cyber Law and Security Podcast. I'm Sarah Correa, doctoral researcher at Swansea University. And I'm Patrick Bishop, a senior lecturer in law, also at Swansea University. And as always, we are here to discuss the cyber law and security news of the past. It's more like two months this time. I'm afraid we've uh, we've been busy. Well, you've been busy with marking. It's marking season you in yeah. Swansea. Um, I've been busy with busyness. Um, so today we are joined by a special guest again this time. So we've got Dan Sopra with us. He's also a doctoral researcher uh, here at the law school and his research is about the challenges posed by trans-border access to data in criminal cases. Am I right? That's correct, yes. Yeah? Hi. Fantastic. And I should also say that as per usual, the views expressed on this podcast do not represent those of our employers, research partners, and or research sponsors. So they will be the views of the participants only. So this is our eighth podcast episode. Uh, we have had over 900 listens, so we're, we're on our way to a thousand and we've got three things to discuss today. So the first one is content regulation. Then we'll talk a little bit about ethical hacking. And we'll also talk a little bit about digital evidence in honor of our special guest. <laughs> so, yeah. Shall we kick off? Yeah. Good. Okay. So the first thing we want to talk about is content regulation. We've talked about content regulation on social media quite a bit in previous podcasts. And we did cover back in March when the European Commission made some recommendations on how social media platforms should deal with the issue of improving content regulation, illegal content online being taken down, how it should be dealt with, etc. So following on from that, there's been a couple of things that I thought would be interesting to talk about. There's one comment that's been written by a, a very um, big fan of this person, Daphne Keller. She's the director of intermediary liability at Stanford. Um, she, she's at the Stanford Center for Internet and Society. And everything she writes is always very clear and useful. So she's written a comment on the commission's recommendations, which I'd like to talk about a little bit about. But there's also been, especially in relation to Facebook. And Facebook, it's unfortunate that we always talk about Facebook because there's plenty of other platforms out mm -hmm. there, but uh, they are one of the big ones and I guess they make the news a lot more. So there we are. Uh, but there was one instance of a German court overturning a Facebook decision to a, a Facebook enforcement decision based on kind of a freedom of expression kind of argument. So they, this was based on an, a, a new law, which has been in effect since January, uh, which says that social media giants must police hate speech on their platforms, but this is within a certain framework, and apparently Facebook got it wrong in this particular case. Uh, so At least according to the German court. <coughs> yes, yeah. yes, according to the German court. And since then, as well, in, was it in April or was it May already? It may have been April. 
No, it was last month. Were we in June? Yeah. We're in June. We're in June, so it was in May. Facebook actually updated their... Well, they sort of updated their terms and conditions. They have, first of all, published some guidance on how they make decisions to take content down. And they've created the possibility for users to appeal, to appeal a decision to take down a particular post on Facebook. So before, you could only... If Facebook, if Facebook t- took down a post, there, you couldn't do anything about it. You couldn't appeal against their decision. The only thing that could be appealed were decisions to take down pages and profile, you know, profile accounts. So they've changed that. So now people can appeal uh, individual posts. And they have also published a kind of a definition of terrorism. So this is, this is a new development. Now, what's interesting, I don't know if this is... I think this is of some relevance. This was guidance. What they published was the guidance that their reviewers use to make these decisions. But they didn't actually seem to have changed the wording of the actual terms and conditions. So I think they've given themselves, you know, some <laughs> some leeway there. Uh, but I don't think, from what I've seen, nothing has actually changed in the t- in the terms and conditions it's just that they made it a bit more transparent, like how they make these decisions. So there's clearly like a movement towards these things being a bit more sort of transparent, I guess. It's interesting. It's, it's almost like Facebook is becoming the equivalent of a state actor. Mm. Uh, just because to show the power these social media companies have over us. Because one view that they might have taken was, well, we're a private corporation these are terms and conditions. If we want to take something down, then we can. But you know, by giving this appeal mechanism, they're all, all almost acknowledging the power they have over individuals yeah. and sort of introducing due process yeah. to that. So they're almost behaving like a state, a state actor in yeah. many ways. It also struck me that it was kind of in line with Ruggie's guiding principles that um, they have a duty to respect human rights, which includes privacy, freedom of speech. But a big part of that is an opportunity for redress to complain about, and that's what they seem to have introduced. Yeah, yeah. We're actually we're having a an event here in Swansea tomorrow. It's the Society for Terrorism Research annual postgraduate event, and I'm going to be speaking alongside a colleague of ours, Amy Louise Watkin, about issues of rule of law in the context of social media regulation. <laughs> and one of the issues is due process yeah. and this idea that these principles of the rule of law apply, seem to be yeah. applying in, yeah. in the context of social media regulation. And I think they, they have to, to an extent. And also as well, you could place in the context is that there's a lot of noise coming from government, both at the UK and the EU level at the moment. Social media platform, you get your house in order or we'll do it for you we'll move to direct regulation. So it might be seen in that light as well, that they'd rather, if you, if you have to fall, at least choose your trajectory, if you, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So it might be part of that as well, to show to the, the powers that be in Europe and in the UK that, well, we're doing something about this issue. Yeah. But it's unusual because the, the debate is usually expressed in the alternative, that they're not doing enough. Yeah. to combat uh, um, certain offensive posts, etc. 
but this sort of appeal mechanism perhaps goes the other way and implicitly acknowledge that they might be doing too much and harming freedom of expression yeah. Yeah, so in the, the process. It's the conflating of criminal and illegal activity with offensive. Um, I found that quite interesting. In Pakistan, they've got a, an Electronic Crime Act and in there, the Pakistani Telecommunication Authority can uh, regulate objectionable content mm-hmm. rather than illegal yeah, content. Yeah, yeah. I thought the conflating of those two things is a very... Yeah. And in, dangerous ma- yeah. ground at the and in many ways, I think these companies are also limited by the the, the jurisdictions that they operate in. Mm-hmm. So um, I think Google started this thing called the Transparency Reports, which is now published by Facebook and Twitter as well, in which they, they publish how much the volume of the content that they've taken mm-hmm. down at the request of state actors. Mm-hmm. And Facebook, for example, have been... Um, criticized you know out in the blogosphere and even in the mm. the mass media for particularly in respect of um the the Turkish government's requests for uh, again under their local national law they they have a, a fairly wide scope to request that content be taken down and facebook does mm. um yeah, and, and, similar and, and, about and, israel as well yeah there's lo- there's lots of cases of controversy about their decisions based on because then they have this culture of you know democracy and being yeah. a platform for the people and it, it, it and then they're engaging in censorship and then and then yeah. so it is it is a difficult position it'd be a real really interesting conflict you know when these terms new terms and conditions work through the system and people start to appeal against individual posts being uh, withdrawn how will he deal with that conflict? You've got a state on one side saying you, you must, or may, may not say you must, but encouraging them to remove content. Then the person appeals. It would be interesting to see how they negotiate that, yeah, yeah, that conflict. Yeah. I wonder if they do things like making certain content only viewable to viewers in certain places. They could do that. They could do Google they, does that yeah. in China and whatever. Well, it's the classic thing. If you, yeah. if you Google Tiananmen Square in China, you'll yeah. have no mention of the massacre. Uh, yeah. So they might well engage in that. So that, that allows them to reach that balance. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. of course, from a anti-censorship, pro-free speech perspective, well, that's still questionable because you know people outside of that jurisdiction might not need to hear that as much as the people within the jurisdiction. Yeah. And so still I think ideologically, the fact that fragmentation of the internet is against the open, free internet in principle <laughs> yeah yeah there is no doubt that the internet is more and more fragmented in that way yeah um this is almost regional worldwide web rather than yeah a regional web rather than worldwide web yeah in that yeah. sense yeah it's interesting to look at youtube's approach as well so youtube they have this three strike policy that they operate and you can appeal each of the strikes separately, but then if you if you get three strikes, they they block your account. And that's it. Uh, but they also have quite a lot more guidance in from what I've seen in comparison with say Twitter or Facebook mm-hmm. or other platforms. YouTube have a lot of detailed guidance out there about the kind of context and metadata that you should be providing with a post that may violate, say, 
because it's got graphic images and stuff. But if it's newsworthy, they've during the Arab Spring they they've kind of developed this idea that if something is newsworthy, even if it if it does contravene their terms and conditions, so evidence of war crimes, for instance. Yeah. Uh, so, so for that for that reason, they they've got this guidance on what what kind of metadata people should say. You know, there should be context with the video. Yeah. Should say why you know why it's newsworthy, where it's happened, mm. how it can be verified, that sort of thing. So it's it's yeah, it's interesting how with with Facebook, I guess if you do that, maybe you've got more grounds for appealing a decision for content to be taken down. Uh, but but they haven't, I suppose, codified this kind mm. of guidance. And do we know how the appeals would be decided? Have they published guidelines or principles on deciding these appeals? This is what the guide the guidance. Oh, not 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 the. Well, no. From what I've seen, it's it just says they're reviewed by they're reviewed by a human reviewer, so it's not automated. Because mm. this is the other thing is that a lot of these things. Increasingly automated. So, yeah, increasingly yeah. automated. So posts are taken down mm. either because they've been reported and then reviewed or because they've been automa- automatically removed mm. because of the that, machine learning. That might be a result partially as well of the GDPR, mm. which created this new right of, oh, of that's right. reviewing Review. yeah. a decision taken by an algorithm yeah. and yeah. the right to be reviewed by a, a, a human rather than a machine. Yeah. That's a good point. But I mean, it would be in the interest of transparency if they haven't published, you know, these are the guidelines, this is what we will look at when yeah. deciding the appeal, then you think it would be a good idea to do that. Yes. And in terms um, of due process, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of stealing this from uh, Prof. MacDonald here, but in terms of due process, the important thing is not, is not to know what the algorithms do or how they identify, but on what grounds... That's what's important for the appeal. We don't need to know what the algorithm, how it works. We just need to know why, where that post has contravened terms and conditions, isn't it? Um, so, yeah, definitely. Because the reason I ask is from what you said about new, with the YouTube example and newsworthiness, you would think a, a, a useful set of guidelines would have a strong emphasis on the public interest. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This in isolation, this image, this video clip might be offensive to some, might show extreme violence, etc. But that's justified on the basis that it's in the public interest because it's a newsworthy story. That's the example you mentioned, Dan. You know, this yeah, this is graphic and it's horrible, but you need to see this because it's highlighting potential war crimes in a state. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I would hope that there's that element of public interest in there. That it's not just based on where well, we thought the algorithm thought that this was offensive content and now the human has reviewed it, it's not. I would hope they would be, well, yeah, this is offensive content, but it's justifiable because of the broader context mm-hmm. that's in the public interest, it's newsworthy, etc. But we don't know. No, we... we'll see, we'll see. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Did you want to add anything else? Cool. So that's. So can I go back for yeah. a second to the the German court? Yes. What was the post there? What was the the nature of the post that was removed? So uh, the user added the comment that the Germans are becoming more and more stupid. No wonder, as they are being clobbered daily by left wing media with fake news about skilled workers, declining unemployment, or Trump. Clearly, an opinion. 
offensive to some. Yeah, so Facebook deleted the comment because it was against community standards. I imagine it may be because of targeting this, like a specific group, perhaps. Yeah. It doesn't actually say in this article. Because particularly sensitive in Germany at the moment because there seems to be a, a rise of maybe not far right, but certainly fairly right-wing um, populist movement, which is largely based around anti-immigration and Merkel's policy of, of immigration. So, but, but at what point does legitimate criticism of a policy yeah. turn illegal? I think that's what the court said mm-hmm. here. This is an opinion. It may be unsavoury. Yeah. It's not a legal way. No. It's not inciting violence in any shape or form, is it? So, yeah. But was, was that... Do we know, was that post deleted because of an algorithm or was it because of human input? It doesn't go into that much detail, oh, okay. actually. Sorry, I'm, I'm looking at a news story, not like the actual case okay. note or anything. Um, okay, so can we move on to ethical hacking? Fantastic. Certainly can. Fab. Two reasons why I wanted to talk about this. First of all, <laughs> because I, I've written this uh, essay which uh, got a commendation from the, uh, uh, what are they called? Real, the Research Ethics and... No, Research Institute for Ethics and Law, perhaps? That's it, that's it. If it's not the right acronym, at least it fits. <laughs> <laughs> so I, um, I've been speaking to a few people about ethical hacking and um, the legality and the ethics of it. I should say that by ethical hacking, I don't just mean malicious ethical hacking. So within the cybersecurity industry, the concept of ethical hacking is used, is extended to people who are cybersecurity researchers who then disclose vulnerabilities to companies and individuals. So they are termed ethical hackers as well. So it's not just penetration testers? No. So it's not just people who have been contracted. Hmm. So that those would be the, the white hats. Yeah. The, the very clearly, they've got authorization, they've got a contract to, yeah. to, to perform that service. And then on the other extreme, you've got the black hats that just do it maliciously, I guess. Yeah. But in the middle, you've got people who don't necessarily have a contract of employment, but they are like the black hats, they kind of roam the internet for vulnerabilities, but then like the white hats, they will responsibly disclose these vulnerabilities Mm. to companies so they can address them. So in a sense, they sort of employ the method of the methods of black hat hackers. Yeah. With the sort of responsibility of white hack. Yes. White hack? White hat hackers. <laughs> uh, so I saw this news story about Kapersky, Kapersky Lab, um, who was having a terrible time at the moment anyway, but uh, there was this one non-negative story about them in the press recently about how they, they've upped their maximum payment that they will pay somebody who responsibly discloses a vulnerability up to $100,000 if it's a critical critical enough. Um, and then I, I had a quick look at a few other, so, so to pick on Facebook again, they, they have a bug bounty program as well, which offers a, a minimum reward of $500. So we, they don't say how, how far 
up the scale they go, but uh, it's it's a, a minimum of five hundred dollars. I wonder if the negotiation goes on. <laughs> it must be. They must, must be, be. You know, I've I've discovered this. How much you're going to pay me? That's yeah. not enough. I'm not telling you about it until you up your offer. Yeah. Because until they know the extent of the vulnerability, then it's going to be difficult for them to to know. Yeah. To know how much it's worth. Well, the other problem is that they're competing with the illegal market for vulnerabilities, which is very lucrative. Some of the critical ones pay very high indeed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the zero so day attack vulnerabilities. Yeah, yeah. So they're trying the to zero day vulnerabilities. Those gray, yeah. those gray hats to move over towards the white rather than the black. Yeah. So and Google also offers. I mean, all of these companies, most a lot of companies do have these uh, publicly available vulnerability bounty mm. type policies or responsible disclosure policies. Some governments have responsible disclosure policies i'm thinking of the the dutch government in particular they 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 have such a thing so um if if you follow this guidance then they they promise not to prosecute you (laughs) my my, not concerned because i think it's a good idea but given the how much i don't know the figures but i presume you know significant vulnerabilities can sell on the black market for a considerable amount of money and so some of the figures that we see here i know they've expressed as minimum i think they possibly need to be higher to if people do it you know if you forget about morality and social conscience and all these things if they look at it in a hard north market-based market decision economic decision and they can move all these other things out of their mind then of course they're going to go for the illegal option which gives them a lot more money than the legal option yeah. Well, strange. I was looking at this year's hackers report, and what I found really interesting is that money making was the third motivation for doing this kind of hacking. It was things like um, having a challenge, career prospects, yeah. and making a name for yourself. All that was more important than the financial aspect, which I didn't expect. Yeah. So, I guess my question then is twofold. First of all, what the the, the concept of hacking within i guess like with respect to the cybercrime convention um and also the uk computer misuse act is pinned on this idea of unauthorized mm. access so uh, but in some other jurisdictions i'm thinking um i can't think what i think it's um california obviously uh, i think in florida as well so this is not state level uh jurisdictions in in the us they they don't use that approach because they there's a concern that the this concept of unauthorized access doesn't protect security researchers to the extent that it should. So so that's one element. That's interesting because I think, in, at least in terms of UK law and the Computer Misuse Act, the concept of authorization is such a flexible, malleable concept that if you had this situation where someone was prosecuted, so, you know, and that could be independent of this, any scheme for payment, you know, they could be prosecuted. But then they could point to the fact that they had implicit authorization mm-hmm. because they weren't accessing the, 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 because they were invited to access the, a system for a particular purpose to find any bugs or, or vulnerabilities in the system. 
And so because of that invite, they were actually implicitly authorised yeah. by the, the owner of the computer system to do yeah. that. Yeah. So I think if one of these cases came before the courts in the UK, the concept of authorisation is flexible enough mm-hmm. to, to construct authorisation, even though it's not explicit consent given to that individual in the same way you would have if you had a penetration mm-hmm. test that was a contract. For a particular organization yeah so if they have a responsible disclosure policy then it's a tacit invite for people to yeah. look yeah. so basically to... whoever's doing the the, the try, trying to get into your system you can't prove intent is is for nefarious reasons it could you, be you don't for... need that interestingly under the computer misuse act any unauthorized use is an offense regardless of the intent interesting uh, it's this um one of the reasons for that was when the act was passed in 1990 was that any infiltration into a computer system will be taken seriously by the target and that will instigate a whole series of expensive measures to look into that and so we wanted to or the purpose was to stop people from doing that in the first place regardless of their intentions but the the quid pro quo for having a law where you can be, commit a criminal offence even though you might have no malicious intent was that the offence should be punished relatively leniently but there's been a bit of a mission creep there where the sentences have increased gradually over the years um, so that now I think for the basic hacking offence it's up to it's up to two, two years. years imprisonment yeah, with so. the law commission whose report led to the enactment of the computer misuse act I think suggested six months maximum penalty so yeah, it's one of these, it, it's it's one of those areas where it doesn't matter what your intent was, you can still be liable. Which is where the issue with researchers comes in because hmm. technically. So really, all the all the work is done by the concept of authorization here. Yeah. Liability will hinge yeah. on that. So if we did have an, if we did have a, 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 a malicious intent requirement, then these people would say, well, no, I wasn't accessing this system to. To cause harm, I was doing it because I was I was looking for the reward. So you got to have that a presumption matter. of that wouldn't matter. Well, you've accessed the system, so the key question then becomes authorization. It's often referred to as the cornerstone of the act. The entire act is built on this concept, mm-hmm. and I think it is flexible enough to deal with this. Yeah, but I yeah. guess in other jurisdictions where they haven't gone down that route, they thought, well, yeah, well, let's just not rely on this nebulous concept which can mean different things to different people and make sure that this can occur legitimately by not having this concept of authorization. Yeah, yeah. Because I know that there's a lot of grey hat hacking mm. that goes on even when companies don't have a responsible mm. disclosure policy. So researchers take it upon themselves to use their own judgment to figure out what is a responsible disclosure and they do it um, and then they may or may not mm receive a payment for it quite often they don't yeah uh, quite often like you were saying you know it's about status as well quite often they will you'll see you see it in the cybersecurity media all the time you know so a researcher finds a vulnerability they tell the company they give them a time frame to resolve it um, and if they don't they make it public um, and obviously the company has an incentive yeah. to resolve it um, and there might be employment to be gained from that as well. Yeah. That's another <laughs> incentive. Yeah. Yeah. The, the poster term gamekeeper type scenario. <laughs> well, it's a way to make a name for yourself. Yeah. yeah. So that kind of situation in the UK would not 
probably would cross that line mm. of legality. Um, yeah. Because I think it's unlikely that you will find a vulnerability that's worth... Yeah. I think you're right. The difference mm. there, in the absence of a, a ethical disclosure policy, uh, then there's no implied authorization. Mm-hmm. So this can't, you know, the, the the defender can't argue. Well, they invited us to look for these vulnerabilities by offering these rewards. If that doesn't happen, then you, you can't find any form of authorization implied or otherwise. So that might be a different, yeah, um, 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 situation. What about so cyber attacks as a as a either self defense or a form of protest? What are your thoughts on this? Because you could have a situation where a company, I don't. I, my understanding is this isn't really strictly legal in in Europe anyway. But you could have a situation where technically to defend against a, an ongoing attack, a company might launch an attack of their own against whoever is targeting them. So that might be considered self-defense. Yeah, okay. Or a completely different scenario, you might have a cyber attack that is launched as a form of protest if we take cyberspace to be, to an extent, a public space. Mm. Well, <laughs> the second issue, in my <laughs> mind, is much easier to deal with. Because yes, any democratic society will have the right to protest, but that's always within limits. And I would take exception to this concept that cyberspace is a public space. If you're protesting via, you know, social media or something, then that would be fine as long as you don't cross other boundaries, such as you know, inciting violence, etc. Yeah, that wouldn't be. But if you say a DOS attack, let's let's. Yeah, well, that well, that's not private space, is it? You you know, you're. you're, How similar is it to a group standing in front of a shop preventing customers? Well, that wouldn't be permitted. If you if you use the offline legal mechanism, that wouldn't be permitted. You have the right to protest. I'm not familiar with the rules, but under the Public Order Act in the UK. Um, if the protest has crosses a certain threshold in terms of numbers, you have to give um, um, notice to the local police, and they can suggest routes, etc. Um, and you know, there's also various harassment offences that you can commit if you're protesting with the purpose of preventing an individual from going about their lawful business. So, if you use the analogy, well, I'm not sure it always works. If something's lawful offline, it should be lawful online, and obviously. First, if it's illegal offline, it should be illegal online. Then the analogy with the offline world says, well, it should also be illegal in the online world. You know, you have the right to protest. We do not have the right to protest in a way which seriously undermines the interests of other members of, of society. So this, in my mind, yeah. that question is easy to deal with. Yeah. I don't know. Do you disagree, Dan? You're looking sceptical there. <laughs> I think disruptive activism isn't that simple. I think there are always ways to push boundaries in the physical world, mm. and that has an analogy online. Mm. And I think DDoS attacks can fall into that. Um, maybe not strictly legal, but definitely <laughs> a, a political um, disruptive act, civil disobedience. Yes, yeah. that's, that's a. Oh, no, I totally accept that point. And in various countries, there's been a long tradition of civil disobedience actually leading to meaningful change within society. But it's defining how reasonable it is as Mm. opposed to 
nefarious criminal attack mm-hmm. on an institution. That's that's the line. I think the the position to take is you say, well, this sort of act, this sort of protest is illegal if it crosses certain boundaries, uh, and but then you rely on prosecutorial discretion. Um, so you know, this is something that non-lawyers don't all, often or always appreciate. That just because something's illegal, doesn't mean that if you do it and get caught, you'll actually be prosecuted for it. You know, if every single crime was prosecuted, um, then you know we'd need you know orders of magnitude more police officers, prison officers, prison CPS lawyers, etc. So I think you can. I absolutely take your point, but that would come down to prosecutorial discretion but then you're relying on the common sense of the prosecutors and it's not always that common Uh, I think for me also the other side of it is that to do a a DDoS attack a distributed attack involves non-voluntary botnets and that blurs the line between ethical and Mm. non-ethical I think that's but a standard DOS attack if if it's arranged with volunteers Mm. doing it I don't think you can get the kind of impact no, doing that as you could do with the DDoS attack. Yeah, I think that's that's an important distinction. Mm. And it would kind of undermine the democratic legitimacy, I guess, of any protest if it's a machine. Yeah, exactly. That's doing it. And yes. Not, <laughs> yeah. And not actual individuals voicing their discontent. So. Well, I mean, this comes down to a, a question we deal with all the time. Sarah and I, when we teach in cybercrime, is well. These are the offline rules. These are the physical, real-world rules. To what extent can they be directly translated to the online world? And there's one view. Well, as I said, if something's illegal offline, it's illegal online and vice versa. But I think that's starting to break down. It's a bit reductive. Yeah, that we, we, you know, we have to accept that cyberspace is maybe a separate domain and maybe there should be different rules or modified rules for that. But I don't think, at least from my personal opinion, this protest issue would, would fit that category because I would draw the line. I would say, yes, you absolutely have the right to protest, but that right ends when you start to infringe on other people's lawful mm-hmm. rights. Mm-hmm. And there's a, an issue of spillage as well, which is common to both something like a, pro- a protest like that or, or a, 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 a cyber counterattack, which is... You know, to what extent can you really uh, guarantee that no innocent bystanders are yeah. going to be affected by this, uh, this the action? Yeah. I guess yeah. the, you, know, you, you, you launch a DOS attack against yeah. an organisation. People who have legitimate reasons to contact that unit, uh, that organisation, yeah. then you know, there. I think you know, inconvenience is one thing, and you know, to some extent, all protests will create inconvenience. That's kind of the point of it. Yeah, but I, I think there's a difference between inconvenience and then there's a, there's a threshold somewhere where that inconvenience becomes so severe yeah. that it really harms someone's interest. But then I think the law is justified in stepping in and saying, well, this is criminal. Yeah. But I, I was thinking even beyond that, say, like with the example of WannaCry, WannaCry was originally targeted at a specific country and a specific uh, industry in mm. that country, and it, it spread across the world. Yeah. So the extent to which... And of course, the spillage concept, mm. there's far more scope for that with cyber attacks than there is with yeah. physical protests, isn't yeah. it? Which yeah. is obviously geographically limited, whereas you can have this spillage effect, I would have thought, potentially far more pronounced with cyber mm. attacks. 
Yeah. yeah, so the issue of proportionality is always going to be... So that's an interesting one. one. What was the first one? Self-defense. Yeah. Uh, well, I, said, I don't know. <laughs> I need to think about that one. Yeah. Um, obviously, in terms of the strict right of the law, it wouldn't be a defense. You know, there's no under, um, at least under the, the Cybercrime Convention, under the the UK legislation, there's no defense there that, you know, yet you you gained unauthorized access to someone's computer system, but you did so because they gained access to yours. So in terms of the law as it stands, whether there, it, there should be some sort of exception there, I, I don't know, I'm open to the, hmm. the possibility. Again, if you use the offline analogy, you know, yeah, okay, you're prohibited from killing another individual. If they pull a gun on you, you're entitled to shoot them, possibly kill them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and But again, that would go through a judicial process where it'd be judged and assessed. So online, you'd need that kind of transparency. Yes, yeah. well, you could, have, you could have the same judicial process. And the, the key elements of self-defence are, is it a reasonable and proportionate response to the threat? So if you, if for example, there's a start of a, an attack that might utterly obliterate your your computer systems, wipe your databases, etc., whatever, um, you might be justified, philosophically, I'm talking about maybe not <laughs> yeah, legally yeah. yet, yeah. in in responding, you know, preemptive attack by taking their systems down before their systems have a chance to to get yours. So the, you know, the, I think the offline analogy would work again here. But as you said, it is you know it needs some sort of judicial process to determine just what's reasonable, what's proportionate. Yeah. And of course, you've got, again, with the self-defence, unless you've got you know, one person one side of a board and the other person the other side and they shoot each other, in most cases of physical attack in the real world, you're within one jurisdiction. Because mm. you always have the added complexity yeah. in the Multiple multi-jurisdiction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and then you, your particular area of interest, well, that might... Inf- effect on state sovereignty then mm. you know so you, you think of a government level there's, 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 there's as an attack or a planned attack on a government system in the uk they they pinpointed the culprits or potential culprits in another country they attack them then is that a breach of their territorial integrity or the territorial sovereignty well, the first step would be if there's a mutual legal assistance treaty in place. Yeah. But outside that, yeah, that's a very interesting question. Yeah. This is a great so again, this, this is a game where segment. the offline <laughs> yeah. analogy can sometimes break down, yeah. and it's usually because of the interjurisdictional element that we have with, with cyber issues that we don't have with offline issues. Which is a great segue <laughs> into our third and last topic for today, which is digital evidence. Um, so I've been following the, well, following from a distance, but still following the happenings of the UN Intergovernmental Expert Group on Cybercrime. Uh, they met in Vienna in April um, and they had the another thing called the Commission on Crime Prevention and Criminal Justice. They um, also had their session in May, and this at this latter meeting there was this big report that was published, which is the report of the expert group on a comprehensive study on cybercrime. Right. So out of all of this, 
<laughs> in all of these UN talks, there was a lot of emphasis on the issue of digital evidence and what countries should be doing to improve the sharing of digital evidence. <laughs> um, so this UN expert group uh, or expert groups, they have recognized that the issue of digital evidence sharing across jurisdictions is a is very problematic at the moment and they have made a number of recommendations. Some of it is about training the legal profession, the judges, the prosecutors, the investigators, law enforcement, the whole uh, shebang on how digital evidence should be handled, chain of custody, analysis, all of that, but also encouraging member states to use these expert groups um, so that some sort of harmonisation can happen with respect of how the sharing of evidence can or should be conducted. So I I think what digital evidence has exposed is how outdated a lot of the laws we've relied on are. It's like in the US, the Stored Communication Act wasn't intended for cloud. They didn't even perceive that there would be a cloud storage system. So that's unveiled a whole load of problems that now these frameworks are trying to kind of codify, harmonise and, and create as frictionless jurisdictional problems as possible. Um, but obviously there are still areas that they're trying to work on. Mm. And of course we've had a couple of news stories about the handling of evidence just within <laughs> the, the UK jurisdiction. There's one one story in in The Guardian, when was this? This was last month yeah it was on um, it was in may about the handling of digital forensic evidence yeah basically just saying that the skills aren't there quite yet and this is leading to court cases collapsing because the ha- the handling of the digital mm. evidence hasn't been done appropriately and especially when you're crossing jurisdictions and you've got different states that have different capacities and different technical capabilities mm-hmm. that other states are relying on. It's a very inconsistent process. Yeah, yeah. It also is a capacity issue as well, you know, with digital evidence, digital data generally. You know, in, in, in the offline world, you know, there's a limit to how many documents you can store. You know, you might be a company engaged in a large-scale fraud, there's a limit to how many documents you can store, etc., just because of its physical size. Yeah. But of course, there's no limit when it comes to digital. Okay, there's bandwidth limits, but that can be extended. So, you know, it's just the sheer volume of evidence that is available. Yeah. And I think also it's, it's the fact that digital evidence, um, almost all crimes leave some kind of digital footprint. Mm. So the, the Microsoft case was all about uh, a narcotics case in New York but there was some evidence on a Yahoo email account that was stored in Dublin. So it wasn't even a cybercrime. It wasn't, it's just that that's yeah. where the footprint was and highlighted a, a, a jurisdictional issue. I think these days, possibly in virtually any crime, there will be some digital evidence that will be used. And you with know. the hypermobility of digital evidence mm-hmm. now, trying to chase that, you can have two people sending a WhatsApp in the same country that ends off going through three or four different countries. Yeah. So that needs to be simplified and, and state rules and jurisdictions need to be cleared, which is what they're trying to do at the minute with these frameworks. Hmm. So where do you see this going? Because of course, like, states will have concerns about sovereignty and... Well, looking at the um, GDPR and the Cloud Act, 
they're both focused very heavily on the nationality of the, the, the user. So in the, U, in the US, it's the, the data user. In, the, uh, in GDPR, it's the natural European um, person, I think, yeah. as a natural person. As opposed to other states where there's quite, quite a cleavage, that, where there's some states that are still very territorial focused, talking Russia, China, there's, there's very much an emphasis on territory as sovereignty as opposed to the nationality. Mm -hmm. I think that's where right, the cleavage that's going to uh -huh. need to be bridged. So which, which, which approach would you think is better? I would have thought that based on the nationality of the person would be a better approach than the territorial yeah, Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Because if, if you've got a group of states that all agree that that nationality of that person falls under that jurisdiction, mm. Then you're automatically going to be more sympathetic to that investigation, crossing yeah. your border to trace that train of digital evidence yeah. to deal with that person. Whereas if you've got a whole series of states all saying this is our physical territory, anything that comes in here, you need to get permission. You, you need a multi uh, a mutual legal assistance treaty between every single state. Mm. With 190 odd states, you can imagine 192 yeah. times 192. That's a lot of agreements yeah. that need to be in effect. And of course, the, all the criminals then will gravitate to the. The least regulated. The least regulated, yeah, race to the bottom type yeah. mentality. Uh, too big a problem. Because yeah. even even if even if the agreements are in place, I'm just thinking on a practical level, uh, are the local police forces going to have the resource to devote to collecting and sharing evidence? Or how is that... I'm not entirely sure how... I guess a lot of this evidence will be held by, by companies anyway. Yeah, so if you look but, at the, uh, the, the Cloud Act in the US, it changed the Stored Communications Act because um, there you had to go through a mutual legal assistance treaty. You had to show uh, the burden of proof was probable cause, which was quite difficult to get to. And the whole process took um, around 10 months on average. It's a very cumbersome system, whereas the Cloud Act that they've put in place now... Um, as long as there's an executive agreement between the US and whoever is requesting information, that service provider who's based in the US now just has to give the information to the, the third party state um, or challenge it in court. And there's some grounds there that they can challenge it on. But it, the whole system is much more streamlined and it should lead to those kind of investigations becoming much more efficient, mm -hmm. hopefully. And that, that obviously will set a precedent across the world if um, it could would, do. Would that be... So that that executive agreement, agreement, does that include any country in the world? Or? Yeah, it's any country, but there is a list of criteria. So they have to respect the rule of law, um, respect human rights. There's, there's, a, there's a list right. of criteria that, the, that these, the Attorney General in, in the US has, can give authorization for. He's the only person that can set up these executive agreements. But as long as they meet these criteria, then this agreement set up and uh, data sharing is, is automatic there. So any country, but a minority of countries, given those lists, that yeah. list of criteria. Yeah, there. definitely. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you for that. I've learned a few things. <laughs> I think we have to uh, leave it at that because uh, we've gone on for a bit. Uh, any free advertising, any events coming up that you want to tell people about? I've already mentioned the Society for Terrorism Research postgraduate conferences tomorrow. Uh, hopefully this podcast will be out before then, uh, but if not, uh, tomorrow is Friday the 8th, 8th thank you, of June, <laughs> of June 2018, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, so anyone in the area might uh, want to come along to that, and I think there's going to be some resources put online, so if you're interested 
in the up-and-coming research um, in the area of uh, terrorism research. There's lots of people coming from across the UK and other countries as well, so it should be good. I'm looking forward to that. And I think we'll leave it at that. Lovely. Thank you, Dan, very yeah, much thank for you. joining us. Thank you for us. inviting me. Yeah, our pleasure. And we'll have to find another guest because it'll be strange going alone. Oh, that's that's two. Because the last that's three true. we've had special guests. <laughs> anyway, see you next time. Bye. 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 Bye.